Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. My guest today is Lola Rainey. She's an attorney, poet, writer, activist, and executive director of Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund. What is Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund? The Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund is a black woman-led abolitionist grassroots organization. That is a lot to say. One of the reasons I always start with that is because, one, it's important to point out that we are a black woman-led organization. When you talk about the nonprofit industrial complex, that's not something that you see a lot of. So it's important to say that from the beginning, we're representing voices and people in the community you don't normally see, but not simply as staff members, but as the folks who are centering and leading the conversation about this this issue. We are abolitionist grassroots organization, meaning that we're from the community. We're, our focus is community. And we are an abolitionist group versus reformist, meaning we're not here to reform the system. We're here to dismantle it and replace it with something better. So the Tucson Second Chance Bell Fund was started in 2017 and was part of a national effort led by uh, a number of groups, including Black Lives Matter. Uh, It was called the Mama's Day Bailout. And it was focusing on helping bail out mothers for Mother's Day. And the idea was to bring some type of spotlight and consciousness, public awareness to the fact that so many women, particularly women of color, were being held, being detained in our our local jails, pretrial detention. And pretrial detention means simply that you are being held in custody waiting trial. And so we have a lot of women of color and men as well, but most, and we should say mostly poor people who are sitting in jail, pretrial detention at the local jails because they don't have the, the means, the money to bail out. Bail is one of the uh, ways that the court can place conditions on your release. The courts have the ability to say, we're going to release you on your own recognizance, meaning that we're letting you go without any type of restrictions or requirements. They can release you under uh, the supervision of pretrial services or a third party if they want to. Courts have a number of options that they can use in determining whether they're going to release a person who's been arrested or they're going to put some restrictions on whether a person's been arrested. And so our bail fund exists to help poor people who are being held caged in our local jail simply because they're poor. Talk about the impact on a family that is striving to make bail for their loved one. Well, let me say there are a couple there there's there's a secured bail, meaning that you can use collateral if you have it, and that's what bail bails bonds people use. They will they make their money off of posting bail, but securing it with collateral that you, your house, your car. Now, if you happen to be a person, and that's assuming the court says we will allow you to use a secured bond. But if they say we want cash money bond, which is one of the things that we are specifically targeting as the uh, Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund, we consider this to be a real inequity, an unfair burden. If you say cash money bail, it means it has to be 100% cash. So for people who are poor, even a $50 cash bill can mean that you can sit in jail for a long period of time waiting to, to raise that money if you can. 
uh, are waiting until your attorney is able to get in front of a judge and ask for a modification of bail because you can't come up with that money. So most poor people who are asked to pay cash bonds end up spending lots of time. If you have been separated from your family, you must understand that even to make phone calls from the jail, there's a fee. If you want to use the commissary for things, there's a fee. If you want to get medical treatment at the facility while you're there, there's a fee. If you want to use the, those nifty little tablets that they provide to all the pretrial detainees or anyone that's being held at the jail, whether you're there for pretrial or other reasons, they provide you with these nifty tablets. But you have to pay to get the apps and things that you can use on those those uh, tablets. So the jail has now is is taking money from poor people to house them and if you are poor to begin with, that means that you're most likely unable to hold your job because you were gone for two or three days, you lose your job. And in some instances, if you're in subsidized housing, you will lose your ability to be in that subsidized housing because you're now considered to be a high-risk person. You have a record of being arrested. That can be caused not only for subsidized housing, but also for apartments and other situations. You can be forced to leave move out because you now have the police come to your apartment, there's a problem, or they hear that you've been arrested. Uh, you can lose your children if you stay locked up too long because if you're a single parent or if you're not, if you're the breadwinner, not being present, not being able to provide the support for your family. So if you're a single mother with children, if you're locked up, where are your children going to go? The reality is that even being housed, being caged for a short period of time has devastating effects on people who are, for the most part, living on the margins of our community to begin with. You're listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson, and our guest today is Lola Rainey, founder of Tucson's Second Chance Community Bail Fund. You've just described some of the implications for people who are asked to pay bail and especially how that impacts poor people, while people who aren't poor can just much more easily post a cash bail or a secured bail. That's true. And and, and what's happened throughout the country, you're seeing this happen, because cash bail has become synonymous with unfairness. You see a lot of courts saying, we're not going to do cash bail anymore. Instead, we're going to use pretrial safety assessments or risk assessment tools. We call them RATs risk assessment tools. And the reason why you see courts moving away from cash money bail is, like I said, it has such a terrible reputation for being a tool that criminalizes poor people. The court said, and and, there, and, and included with that critique was a, uh, a complaint that judges were implicitly biased against certain groups of people. So they're imposing cash money bail on some people who happen to be, you know, maybe uh, people of color or uh, homeless people. or So they were saying that that's, that, that was an abuse on the part of the judges and cash money bail was this, was sort of a symptom of a larger problem with judges. So the court says, okay, that's getting to be really unpopular and very problematic for us. We're going to start to pull away from using cash money bail and we're going to pivot towards using a scientific-based tool. And that's what risk assessment tools, uh, that's where they came into play. Risk assessment tools are actually profiles based on uh, certain data fields that come from a variety of sources, mostly law enforcement, pro-law enforcement sources, that sort of characterize the types of uh, histories and information that, that can be correlated with criminality. 
Okay, and if you believe that, this is what I said to people at one of the sessions I attended recently. I said, if I told you I had a scientific machine that could predict your future, that I can tell you whether what you're going to do next week, what you're going to eat next week, would you believe that? And you probably would say, no, that's ridiculous. But this is what the courts have said. We now have a tool that would predict criminality. We can predict who's going to show up in court who's likely to uh, abscound, uh, disappear, and who's likely to commit another crime. By having people fill out these specific questions that are related to data that we know that certain research groups and institutions have have correlated with crime. If you have a certain, uh, after we take all this information, we're going to end up with a number because they weight the questions and answers uh, in a certain way. And so that if your number, your score at the end of this process is high, then generally that means that you are one of the people who we can, quote, safely say should not be allowed to be free. And if your number is low, well, then we we feel like you're a person that we can trust to, to return to the community. So PSAs have now become a substitute for cash money bail in some instances here in Pima County. They still use cash money bail and the PSAs because judges have not learned how to beat their addiction to criminalizing poor people, I say, because the PSAs really were designed to decarcerate, to reduce the number of people going to jail. And instead, we see very little movement in the number of people being incarcerated at our local jail. And just as a reminder, people who are in pretrial detention haven't been adjudicated yet, just by definition. Exactly. And so there's something, and this is, a, this is why I say this is sort of a moral question. We're in a moral dilemma, a moral crossroad for our, our community. One, we're, we're asking people to do something they don't do a lot, which is to actually pay attention to what's going on in their courthouse. And courthouses tend to be places where people who are specialists, lawyers and judges and and or paraprofessionals, that's where they go. And people who are, quote, in trouble. And most of us want to stay away from places like that. And we also have been taught to believe that the system is, quote, fair. Well, the, it really isn't fair. It was not built are intended to be a fair system because the system, if you look at the history of the courts, it was always designed to protect the interests of the powerful and the moneyed people in this, in any community, but in our country. And so the laws are created to protect their interest, and they're enforced in such a way that certain groups are, are more targeted than others. So we can criminalize and have been criminalizing certain people for a long time. Black people have been the brunt of the criminalization of communities in this country forever. Uh, It was a form of social control. We get rid of the troublemakers. We ensure that there is always a buffer between black communities and white communities. And so this idea of black people being criminal is as you see in media and stories where people are saying, I was attacked by a fictitious black person, but immediately there's, oh, well, that's credible because that's how it's been presented over and over again. There's certain people are more likely to be criminals. So when you see that being played out in in courtrooms where police over-police certain communities, and you, you show up and say, well, that's because those are communities where there's high crime. No, no, not really. I'm a former prosecutor. I don't like to talk about that. <laughs> I mean, it's part of my, my past history. But people in the court know this this fact, that the most violent people in, in America are white males. They are the most violent people. Well, that, that's true. What they'll say is, well, well, black males are disproportionately. Violent. No, but the most violent people 
in the country are white males. They commit more, more violent crimes than anybody else. But when you think of a person committing violent crime, you don't think of a white male. But you should. Okay, so it's the fact that we have a image of a criminality that's rooted in a sort of a race, racialized perspective is one of the reasons why, you know, this system has has worked so well, because it ensures that, again, it's easier to take the liberty and freedom of some people while protecting the freedom of others. And what we're saying to the community is that that's not a system that represents our values or does it? Do you want to feel safe? on a a narrative that is not rooted in truth. If white males are more violent than Hispanic males and black males, why are we imprisoning and holding, uh, encaging black men and and Latino males and uh, indigenous males, but we're not, we're given a pass on white males. Therefore, the idea of safety is an illusion. You're not dealing or addressing the violence that is really a threat to you. What you're doing is going along with the fiction because you bought into this notion that caging certain types of people makes us safe. They're homeless. They're mentally ill. They're talking to themselves. They smell. What all the, the things that make us uncomfortable, we justify saying these people are unworthy of their, of their safety. So we're asking the community to take a harder look at how the system works, to understand that it could be made better. And one of the things we're asking them to do is to to come to terms with the idea that caging people does not make us safe. What does make us safe is investing in people. What makes us safe is providing livable wages to people. What makes us safe is providing affordable housing to people. What makes us safe is caring about people, providing mental health support services that keep people, you know, allows them to be in the community and not caged and using our jails as a default for mental health, okay? So those are the types of truths. Instead of investing in bullets and guns, we should be investing in the types of social services that improve the quality of lives of our neighbors and our children and investing in something that really builds healthy families so that people are in situations where they're making choices that put them in, I I call uh, situations where they can be Profiled and involved in actions that are that 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 are not positive and and uh, constructive. Our guest today is Lola Rainey. She's an attorney, poet, writer, activist, and executive director of Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund. How are you educating people about this issue? Well, one of the um, things that we're doing uh, is. We are working with our, our partners. We're collaborating with our community partners to do a public education um, campaign. Uh, Surge Tucson recently did a training where they invited the community and their members to come in and spend a couple hours doing a deeper dive into what uh, pretrial uh, detention looks like, why it's a problem, how does it work in our court system, because most people don't know that, for example, pretrial decisions are made at early stage of the adjudicatory process, meaning at the initial appearance stage. When a person has been arrested, within 24 hours, they have to be brought in front of a magistrate or judge. So within that first 24 hours, decisions are being made about a person's liberty. And the, unfortunately, once that decision is made, it's hard to change it. So we have people who, who are being told, well, you're, going, you're not going to be released. You're going to sit in jail. And there is, I think, a 10-day rule that, that says that once a decision of, of uh, release has been determined, the defense attorneys have to wait at least 10 days before they can come in and ask for a modification. I'm going to say the presumption was that it would give 
victims, particularly victims of uh, uh, domestic violence and so on, an opportunity to be to make changes and get into more safe spaces. But it's applied across the board to everybody, regardless of the type of uh, a charge you're, you're facing. So that means you have to sit in jail probably for at least 10 days before your lawyer can come in and even ask for a modification. So if the PSA score says we should keep you, uh, understand that means that they literally, the judge can keep you there until your trial. They don't have to give you a bail option. They can simply say the PSA says you're a high risk, so we're going to just let you sit in jail. What does that mean for a person sitting in jail and for people who have to do time? It's one of the hardest types of time because there are no programs, there's nothing. You just have to wait. You just sit in jail. And what it does to the to the morale, the, the, the emotions of people who, are, who become more desperate, more agitated, more frustrated, is that it puts it creates a, a cauldron of, of really toxic emotions. And I think that our local jail has not done a great job of training its officers to de-escalate the type of tensions that you're going to find in a, in a place where you've got people caged who don't want to be there. Uh, a lot of them simply cage because they're poor and they can't get their families or they can't do their jobs and they know their life is falling apart. Recently, we had a, the Tucson Second Chance Community Bell Fund, along with Serge Tucson, um, who, who uh, support a number of our local partners supported us in this uh, this call for action at a press conference. Reason why we had this call for action was because we had two deaths at the Pima County Jail. Two people who were in pretrial detention, meaning they were awaiting trial, they're waiting to go to trial, were engaged in what the sheriff's department calls excessive force encounters. Excessive force encounters means that somebody used too much force and someone got hurt. In this case, two men died. Again, how do we get to this place where the only option we have is to use extreme violence to control people? That means that we are again saying that we feel okay with using that type of force and that type of power because, one, we think we can get away with it, but also because we have not given people the tools to do something different. And I've said to the community, we cannot allow these deaths to go unchallenged. We have to say to the guards there, to the sheriff, Sheriff Napier, that this is unacceptable. We expect people to be safe while they're being detained. We want our brothers and our sisters and our children to go into those facilities if they have to be there at all, and we don't want them there, but we want to know that they can come out and not be injured, not be damaged, not be brutalized, because that's not what that jail is for. People are being held against their wishes because they're poor, and now you're killing them inside that jail and in doing it with impunity because nothing has happened to any of the people involved in either of these incidents. Specifically with Mr. Maxwell, I was told that the Pima County Attorney's Office decided not to press any charges against any of the officers involved in his death. And the other complicating factor for both of these individuals was that we have a Pima County medical examiner who aids this process of you know not being held accountable by coming up with a, a conclusion that both of these deaths were indeterminate deaths meaning we can't figure out what killed them. I said, how is that possible? How do you do an autopsy on two otherwise healthy people and who are involved in excessive force encounters with police and you don't know what killed them? That smells funny. You're listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our guest today is Lola Rainey. She's an attorney, poet, writer, activist, 
and executive director of Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund. As I mentioned, one of the things that was really important for us was that one, our ally surge, which means showing up for racial justice, our Tucson chapter of that uh, national organization did a recent training around the issues of pretrial detention because it's not something that people know a lot about. But in addition to that public education piece, we also need to have a judicial accountability piece. We have to recognize that judges, although we've been taught to, to think of them as neutral and impartial, and when you start talking about pretrial detention, they're the ones who are really making the final decision about who gets released and who doesn't. And they're not impartial in terms of their role in setting people free. And what we're saying is we want to hold them accountable for actions that do nothing to make us safe, but do a lot to hold, like I said, people who should be free and that they're taking actions that do not make us safe, but criminalizes segments of our community. So we want to do a court watch program to focus on what's going on in initial appearances and to track the types of decisions that judges are making and who is being uh, released and who is not being released. Is there a racial component to this? And the reason why we want to know that is that we can then share that with the community. We can talk about this is what we saw. And we can also say these are the people who we saw doing it. <laughs> and, you know, at some point for the Superior Court judges, there's retention. For magistrates, the issues of appointment. But they work for us. These are people that we have to be able to say we trust. And if we have judges doing things that work against our interests in the community, then we should be able to figure out how to change that. One, the judges then are aware that they're being watched. And more importantly, they can be accountable to the people who put them there. And I think that's something that's new because we have judges and people in the court system who, other than when you're on the jury, you rarely go to the courthouse or rarely visit the courthouse. Your role is so limited, you don't have a big picture. So what we're trying to do is give people a bigger picture of what the court is, its role in the mass incarceration problem that we have all over the country. We incarcerate more people in this country than anyone else in the world. A country that says it is a democracy, a country that prides us up on its notions of liberty, incarcerates more people than anyone else in the world. One out of three Americans will experience some form of incarceration or someone in their lives will be incarcerated. That's a, a statistic that should be shocking. So if we don't want to become this uh, world where we're caging people and, you know, again, look at our crime rate in terms of how effective has it been? I don't want to I don't want to misstate this because our crime rate is, is at a historic low. So let me not misstate that our crime rate is at a historic low and violent crime in particular is at a low rate. So there really isn't a reason to keep incarcerating so many people because we are, as a society, moving away from the types of behaviors that law and order people have used to justify crime. So if the crime rate is at a historic low, particularly violent crimes are at a very historic low, then why do we continue to incarcerate so many people? Most of them are low-level drug offenders or accused offenders. So what we say is that we have issues with drugs, which are associated with the type of, like I said, poverty, uh, high unemployment, homelessness, mental illness, all these other social issues that feed the drug epidemic we have. Locking drug addicts in prison, caging them, does not cure their problems. It does not help. But that's what we've turned to since we don't have the same level of violent crime, same level of crime generally. We're left to scrape, you know, suck in who else is there. We're now using immigration 
as a form of, you know, to justify detaining lots of people. So between the criminal system that's caging mostly low-level drug offenders because they no longer have all these, you know, so-called dangerous people we used to lock up, you know, not not that they existed to begin with. But now we're also bringing in feeding uh, on the this desperation of people trying to come to this country to flee the problems and violence in other places that they live, and we're taking them and using them as uh, detainees in immigration centers all across this country. So even in places where the number of people being incarcerated in prisons has declined, we're now taking those places and filling them with immigrants and holding them until we can deport them. So is this not sound like a very uh, wicked, crazy machine that uses brown people through and, 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 and other folks coming, in, coming into our country seeking asylum and protection, and we put them in jail, and we have a poor people and addicts and homeless and other people. We're putting them into the criminal justice system, and all we're doing is feeding this machine that requires lots and lots of bodies to justify the salaries and the shareholders who invest in private prisons. I mean, this is a money-making machine. It's not about safety. It is about economics and who's getting paid. And we're saying end pretrial detention. End it. It was never designed to be what it is now, which is a bottleneck for poor people to be held as they await trials. People deserve the right to be free. I deserve the right to be. Everyone has a right to be free. Being arrested does not make you guilty of anything. Why are you holding me and custody away from my family. And if we can say that to our community, it's wrong to hold people in custody to make them await trial six months, seven months, a year away simply because they're poor. It's wrong. It's not what this country says it represents as a nation. Historically, it has not been a good, it's not been good, it's not lived up to his words in terms of his desire to be a nation for all people and liberty for all people. But, you know, we as a community have the power to ensure that in Tucson, Arizona, we actually believe in the things that our Constitution says. We actually believe that we don't have to cage our, our, our neighbors to be safe. We actually want to hold our judges accountable. We don't want our guards at jail beating people to death. That's not who we are as a people, as a community. And I say that's what we're fighting for of the Tucson Second Chance Community Bell Fund. And if you're interested in being involved in our work, first of all, you can. You know, we have a uh, website, www.watchtucson.com. Go to our website and find out more about who we are, what we're doing. We'll be posting uh, when we're going to be doing certain actions. Uh, you can also reach out to us directly at uh, tucsonsecondchance at gmail.com. And we love to hear from you. And if you're interested in working with us, you could also work a uh, contact us uh, showing up for racial justice, Tucson, one of our allies. They're amazing. And that's a great place to begin to understand about the role of white supremacy and its influence in the way the criminal justice system operates here and across the country to learn how to be a as we call an ally and not a person who comes in with good intentions but has no understanding of the complexity of the problem here and how racially loaded it is. But showing up for racial justice, they also have a website. It's a good starting point to begin to understand and unravel some of the history of uh, race and the legal system. But, you know, we're also working with that as the bail fund, paying bond for people who are poor. That's our first 
um, trying to end that practice, fighting to end that practice, fighting to end the use of risk assessments. And ultimately, our goal is to set our neighbors free to end pretrial detention because it's wrong. People should not be forced to sit in cages awaiting trial. We'll have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Lola Rainey, attorney, poet, writer, activist, and executive director of the Second Chance Community Bail Fund. More information is available on their Facebook page and on their website, watchtucson.com. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. There you can also subscribe to the podcast and find our social media links.